welcome to PathPod. Today we're doing our segment called Beyond the Scope, where we speak to pathologists about their pursuits and interests in and out of pathology. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Jang. You can follow me on Twitter at S-A-R-A underscore J-I-A-N-G. We're very lucky today to have Dr. Nicola Perry on the show. Dr. Perry is a veterinary pathologist and clinical associate professor and the head of pathology at the Tufts Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine. You can follow Dr. Perry on Twitter at Tufts Vet Path. Welcome, Dr. Perry. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's really great to be here. I'm very grateful that you were so kind to invite me. So thanks again. I appreciate it very much. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you because I feel like we've kind of gotten to know each other on the Twitter sphere. And I find that every time I talk to a veterinary pathologist, I'm always learning new things, such awesome facts, because we see more or less one species in our practice, but y'all see all kinds of different species. So really, really looking forward to chatting. Oh, it's excellent. I, I do enjoy our, the, the field that I work in. I must admit, I, I like all the comparative stuff. It's definitely, it's a great career. So tell us a little bit about how you got into veterinary pathology. I know for those of us in human pathology, it's a little different training system than what you've gone through. Yeah. So I guess I was like most vet students when I started vet school. I, I probably had a, a career in general practice in mind, which is what most vet students tend to to have in mind when they start vet school and, and also what most vets do, most vets do when they graduate. But really, as time went by when I was at vet school and, and we started our pathology courses, that really began to hook me in. It wasn't anything that I had even had on my radar before I started at school. I didn't really know anything about pathology per se. So when I started to, to go through pathology, it really hooked me in. And I was also really fortunate. Sorry, my cat has made a nice appearance for <laughs> one of them. When I was at school as well, I was also really fortunate in, in being able to be offered different grants and different opportunities for student research projects and, and paid lab work in the pathology department during vacations. And it was really this whole combination that kind of shifted my thought process as I went through vet school. Um, I, I just grew really fascinated by the vast range of things that veterinary pathology seemed to to really offer to to somebody who had who had followed that specialty. And I think it didn't take too long before I thought that I was probably going to head into that field myself. I, I I also loved the fact that it was such a key part of clinical case management and just the whole potential for collaboration seemed really endless. So really just kind of hooked me in gradually. Yeah. And I think that you share something with a lot of us is not all of us go into medical school thinking we're going to be a pathologist, right? Because if you think exactly. about what do you see on TV, it's you're either in the ER or your house where you do every specialty at once. But still, despite the fact that I think uh, all of us are, are very excited and enthusiastic about sharing and educating about pathology, it's, it's kind of, we like to call it like medicine's best kept secret. So similar to your experience, right? Yes, I, I like that. Medicine's the best kept secret. So if you go to vet school and you want to specialize in pathology, how do you go about getting that additional training? Yes. Yeah, so after vet school, anybody who wants to become a veterinary pathologist has to do a residency program. Our residency programs are split. So you can either follow anatomic pathology or clinical pathology. And obviously, 
there's obviously overlap between the two of them. So whichever one you go into, you get a little bit of exposure to the other anyway. But but in general, people tend to choose which one they want to specialize in before they actually start their program and um, and apply for those programs specifically. So and it's a three-year program typically in the in, in the U.S. and at the end, you, you become eligible to sit the board exam at the American College of Veterinary Pathologists. So that's really the, the main thing that, that people will do. And you can follow a residency straight from vet school. You don't have to do an internship, which is different than most of the other veterinary specialties. So anybody who wants to do surgery or internal medicine, for example, they usually have to do an internship year before they can apply for residency, but we don't have that requirement in, in pathology. So anyone at vet school can come straight into pathology. Oh, it very much mirrors human pathology because right now pathology doesn't require an intern year either. So we're one of the few specialties oh, really? in human medicine. Yeah. So in human medicine, oh, wow. we, we don't require an internship. And similarly, residencies are APCP. And I think for human pathology, most people end up training in both AP and CP, but there's a fair number of people who choose to specialize just in one or the other. So hmm. a lot of parallels, uh, despite yeah. the obvious difference in species. Yeah. So did That's you always want to be a vet when you grew up? When you were a kid? I did, yes. I, I was one of those kind of stereotypical kids who my, my parents and my grandparents have always told stories over, over the holidays of knowing that I was always going to be a vet, you know, because I, I always wanted farm animals for Christmas, you know, the little, <laughs> little, little farm sets and things. I never wanted to play with dolls. I was a bit of a tomboy and I never wanted dolls. I just wanted animals and, and, and kind of stuffed dogs and things like that. So um, yeah, I always apparently talked about becoming a vet when I was a little kid at school. So <laughs> it, was just, it wasn't really surprising to anybody when I followed the, the field after, after school. Yeah. That's funny. When you said I always wanted farm animals for Christmas, I was like, oh, so <laughs> like, like a, like a longhorn? <laughs> or... Did you, you ever get a I live farm I, animal for I, Christmas? I, I realized I would have to clarify that. No, <laughs> thankfully there were never any, um, any live farm animals. I, I was raised in the city, so um, it wouldn't have had much of a, much of a home in, in our city house. <laughs> <laughs> It just, it was just a really amusing mental image to have, just have like chickens under the Christmas tree or something like that. Just, just a little sheep, a little mm. lamb. So tell me a little bit more about, you know, the residency in veterinary pathology. I think about how hard I think it is to do human pathology, but we just have the one species to keep up with. How do you go about learning all the different species? Do you learn about all the mammals at once and all the reptiles at once, or is it mixed together? It's very much mixed together, to be honest, that because most residency programs, they are not, um, there are no actual courses that you will do. There are a few programs that do have required courses, but they are few and far between, and they tend to be the ones that are combined residency master's programs or residency PhD programs. But your typical pathology residency training program doesn't have any kind of prescribed courses that that anybody has to do so it's very much uh, a learning by immersion kind of experience that, that we would go through so it obviously depends on the school that you're at as well because if you're at a school in the midwest where you might have 
uh, a big emphasis on lots of farm animals that that might be very prevalent in coming into your diagnostic lab then you're going to get a lot of exposure to those kinds of animals whereas at tufts we for instance we don't have a lot of cattle in this area um, and the and the cattle that do come the cattle that are around the area tend to go to um to the state diagnostic lab in connecticut which is a lot cheaper than than a farmer sending a a, mm. a cow for a post-mortem exam to a university lab so there's that kind of thing going on there so there's a little bit of variation in, in species that residents will get exposed to directly during their program mm. but for the most part most residents will get a lot of exposure to to you know, what we what we class as small animals which cats and dogs um horses small ruminants so you know, sheep and goats um we get a lot of llamas as well and alpacas oh. at tufts huh. um That's lots of horses so small ruminants and farm animals and small companion animals and horses tend to be, for most schools, the, the backbone of, of the, the programs. And then the, a lot of things will depend on what the, the school might specialize in. So we have a, a great wildlife program at Tufts. Oh. And so we do an awful lot of wildlife pathology as well. Oh, um, wow. often, you know, with our wildlife clinic, um, we also have a great exotic species clinic as well so we get lots of reptiles and, and chickens and things you know but <laughs> pets. so we, we get a whole a real whole host so there's a lot of immersion of the variety of species in a, a resident's day-to-day exposure you know on the autopsy floor aside from that all the weekly programs that that you might go through weekly training sessions and things will also be different ways of exposing you to the comparative stuff that you might not get yourself you know so you residents gradually learn how to when they're thinking of disease x what what things might it trigger in a different species you know, they may see a disease process or a virus in in one species and then we kind of get them used to the thought process of thinking about things like what would this virus cause in a different species and and then they have to go off and look up the the gross pictures and and things like that so there's a lot of step-by-step things that that we plant the seeds and and they go off and and look up various things about species they don't necessarily get shown or get get exposure to in the um uh you know in the autopsy room themselves I think that's so great. Such an important part of training is giving our trainees the tools to continue lifelong learning and what to do when you don't know, because certainly even now, years into my practice, there's plenty of things that I look at and I'm like, oh, I'm not sure what that is. And then you have to have the tools to work it up, right? And figure it out for yourself. Um, Exactly. The same for me. I mean, I, I remember being very naive when I was a lot younger and thinking, Oh wow! It'll be great when I know so much. You know, <laughs> in twenty years, and and twenty years on, I go to work every day, and I, I usually see something that I think, "What the heck is this?" <laughs> and it's I think um, I think I was saying something like this to one of our residents a couple of weeks ago that um, the, the difference between seeing something and thinking, "What the heck is this?" when you're a resident, and the difference between seeing it and saying that in twenty years' time is really that you. You don't panic but when you don't know what it is 20 years on. Yeah. You, you, you don't really panic because you, like you say, you have the tools to, to know how to deal with it. And, 
um, take it to a consult or something. So I think that knowing what you don't know is so important and being yeah. able to kind of help our residents learn that in training because then when they go out into the real world they have to decide do I know this or do I not yeah. talking about training I remember when I was finishing uh, my training program one of my attendings was telling me well at the end of fellowship is the most confident you'll ever be and then as soon as you start practicing you take a nose dive and start questioning everything and then you kind of yeah. slowly build your confidence back up and I think that humility and openness to maybe being wrong is really yeah. helpful for us to keep us on our toes and make sure that we're really doing the right thing for our patients, right? So. I mean, definitely. I, I say a, a similar thing to, to residents as well. I always tell them that, that the day they take their board exam is the day they'll be the smartest they'll ever be. And, <laughs> and it's all downhill. It's all downhill after that. So. Yeah, I love that idea of just thinking about the same entity in different animals. And that's something that we don't get in human pathology because it's, it's all the same animal. And I've had a few experiences where I've been asked to do some, you know, kind of collaboration on animal models of disease. And it was very disorienting to me to say, well, this thing, I remember one collaborator was showing me something that they told me was a, a thyroid tumor in a mouse. And I was like, this looks a lot like salivary gland. Is this just salivary gland. And I realized how I was really not equipped to, to handle these questions because I had no idea whether mouse salivary gland looked the same as human salivary gland or not. By the way, I was right. It was salivary gland and it yeah, wasn't a thyroid yeah. tumor <laughs> because mice have, I guess, very prominent salivary glands. They do. Um, and that kind of thing is really interesting to me. I think it was you who taught me on Twitter that the major hematolymphoid organ in fish is the kidney, right? Yes, I remember that. Yeah. And yes. I, I feel like that, it's things like that, that I would never think of because in humans, the kidneys don't really have a lot of hematopoiesis unless they're involved by lymphoma. One of my renal uh, pathology colleagues presented a case of a renal lymphoma and I was able to pull out your fun fact about fish kidneys and they, they, were, they were fascinated. They were fascinated. <laughs> so you, you mentioned a little bit about the exotic animals that you see. In terms of the literature for these different animals, is there a pretty robust literature out there or are some animals less published on than others just because of their rarity? Uh, you know, it kind of varies that because even within our specialty, you know, even within anatomic pathology or whatever, clinical pathology, pathology in general, there are some people who, who do like to subspecialize. So there are people who do a lot of exotic pathology as a, as a real focus. I, I don't, it's not something that I, I specialize in. I'm more of a mammalian pathologist for sure. So whenever I can recognize, so just because I had a good training, comparatively speaking, it, you know, it really does equip you to be able to be a good comparative pathologist and it enables you to, to recognize the, the more common household lesions and things when you get those but I, I definitely often will defer to somebody else who has that that experience who maybe only works with with species one particular species continually so there is quite a bit of literature on just about any species you can find but obviously like you said it's variable it, it can be quite limited depending on the on the actual species type I often like to speak to the, the clinicians as well, because 
when if I speak to my my friends who are exotic animal veterinarians, clinical veterinarians, and they can help to put a lot of stuff together, which is which is really good when you get these kind of weird species that you don't typically see every single day. Yeah, I like yeah, those collaborations. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's just like in human medicine, if there's something kind of weird or something unusual where I think, oh, might it be this kind of weird thing? I'll pick up the phone and call them and just say, hey, what does the patient look like? Does this make sense for them? And that really completes the picture. So it's all about collaboration to get the best answers for sure. It really is. That's one of my favorite things about our specialty is the collaboration, I think. Yeah, yeah. One one thing I was curious about is I've heard that in at least the veterinary medicine that we're exposed to in household animals, that cytology plays a large role or maybe a larger role than it does in human medicine. Yeah, it certainly does. I mean, all clinical pathologists will, will take on all all the cytologies from all the, the the hospital patients at the at the school, and it's the same, obviously, for um, if there's a, a veterinarian in general practice who takes some samples and wants them analyzed and they will go off to a, a clinical pathologist at a corporate diagnostic lab. And yes, it definitely does play a, a big role because obviously they're just like in human medicine, they're getting kind of on the spot answers and um, it really helps to, to guide patient management at the end of the day. So it's, it's often great for us because it's very frequent that I'll get something that, that one of our clinical pathologists has, has seen the day before or two days previously. So and we get a lot of good feedback and, and collaborative discussion there as well, which is always fun. So is cytology part of clinical pathology in veterinary medicine? Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Wow, that's so interesting. It's, it's definitely so part of anatomic and human medicine. I've noticed that from, yeah. from all your tweets, especially. I, I find that really interesting how that part of things differs. I, I always enjoy speaking with our clinical pathologists because they, they teach me so much about, about the cytology and stuff. So. Oh, interesting. That's that's another fun fact I'll have to remember is that cytology is clinical pathology for veterinary yeah. practice. Fascinating. So one of the things that I, I know from Twitter is that you recently moved and took on this new role as the head of pathology. How has that transition been like? It's been interesting because um, I obviously had to go through the whole pandemic move. So it, you know, things look very different now than how I thought they would be back when I interviewed in, um, in January, because we were, that were kind of pre-pandemic times. Yeah. So it's, um, the, the physical move was painful trying to get across from Indiana sure. in, in June. It's really nice to be back on campus because this is my second time working at Tufts. I, I love the school. So it's, it's really nice to be back. It's great to be back in academia as well. It was a big decision for me because I, I did a lot of thinking about the whole move in general when I was spoken to last year about applying for this position when they were looking for a new head of pathology. I kind of knew that I would always go back into academia. You know, I've been in as a private consultant for about seven years, six or seven years before I came back over here. And I always knew that I would probably go back into academia. I didn't think I was going to be consulting forever on my own. But I was really enjoying it. I was really enjoying working from home as well. It was a great, it was just a great lifestyle. And I really enjoyed collaborating with all the scientists and the um, researchers that I worked with. But uh, when this opportunity arose, I thought it is a great opportunity. It's a school that I love. I've been there before. So 
it's not really new to me. It's you know it's the same department that I went to. A lot of the same people. I know a lot of the clinicians are still there who I've known for so long. So it wasn't really a a difficult decision at the end of the day because I knew that I, I had it had so much to offer me. So it's great to be back. I, I love being on campus again. Just a shame that all the students are are on Zoom for the most part, apart from our senior groups. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And congratulations. It's so exciting, right? And and I've seen your tweets of your residents and I can see your enthusiasm and passion for education through Twitter. And I think it's great that you're able to now engage in that, if not always face-to-face, at least on Zoom. I know we're, we're doing a lot of our teaching, in fact, most of our teaching on Zoom and is this Monty that is just... This is Monty, making, yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a shame that the folks on the podcast listening won't be able to see, but uh, there's a beautiful cat interrupting a little bit here. And I think that she's doing what cats like to do, which is uh, it's in your face when yes. you're trying to have a conversation. I remember when I took transfusion call um, in the middle of the night as a resident, my cats would always be thrilled that I was awake and I was up in the middle of the night randomly. And all three of them would would just converge upon me and meow as loudly as possible into the telephone as I'm trying to get patient history from this floor nurse about a potential transfusion reaction. And I just had to apologize because I sounded like a crazy cat lady on the phone (laughs) with just yowling. So they have great timing. They have great timing. I think they must learn that at kitten school. There's definitely something that's, um, it's it's an acquired trait for sure. Yeah, yeah. They, they're very, very adamant about taking up their space in the world. Yes, they really are. We've seen some cases in the news about pets testing positive for COVID. Have, have you seen that in your practice at all? No, we haven't had that at our school at all. But on a similar note, we do have one of our researchers is, is doing a lot of COVID research. And she's working with a group from, from Harvard doing some collaborative work. So the school is very integral with respect to the, the research that's going on. But um, from a clinical point of view, we haven't seen anything, not, not knowingly anyway, that has come through. One of our infectious disease researchers, he has been doing some of the surveillance testing. So I know he is involved in, in that side of things for COVID, but, um, but we haven't had any clinical cases or, or anything that was even kind of suspicious of of clinical case as far as I know. And when you say the surveillance testing, is that in a specific population that they're doing surveillance testing on? I think that back when, um, back when some of the, those first cats started to be uh, kind of popping out in the news across Europe. And um, I think eventually we had one over here and there was also was it a tiger at the Bronx zoo was also tested positive as well. I think back in that time, some groups just started to do some random surveillance testing of, of small animals just to see, like mm. dogs and cats, just to see what was out there in the population. So I, I don't know what kind of, of sample population he was targeting. Um, I'm not sure about exactly what's, what sample of the population is, is being targeted. It's just random. I think that's really interesting because humans are variably good at social distancing, but you have to imagine if you're taking your dogs to the dog park, they're not, they're not really social yeah. distancing because that's not how dogs are. So it would, be, it would be interesting to see <laughs> if there were transmission I, I, patterns that way. 
I think that every day when I, I, I now, because I'm not working from home anymore, I, I drop my dog off. He goes to doggy daycare every day and, um, <laughs> yeah. and, and runs with the pack. And he has a good time with all, yeah. the, all his his friends. So there's no social distancing. <laughs> <laughs> lucky, lucky dogs, I guess. I know. I agree. So I guess it's reassuring on that end that we haven't seen a huge uh, uptick in COVID cases among our pet yeah. animals, at least. So, so that's exactly. good. That's good. I think that's been the, the general thought process has been that because our companion animals are, are so common across the, all across the world, that just the fact mm-hmm. that we've had so many cases in people, I know we, I think everybody has felt that if transmission between animals and people were a, a big deal, then we we would undoubtedly have seen some evidence of it by now in the yeah. all the surveillance testing. So touch wood, that's a it's a good thing that we haven't had so many yeah, cases. Definitely, that would introduce a challenging wrinkle, oh, and then gosh. you couldn't take your dog to doggy daycare anymore. I and know. That would be hard. <laughs> be awful. That'd be hard. So, if you couldn't be a veterinary pathologist or a veterinarian, what would you mm-hmm. what would your dream career be? I suspect that if I hadn't gone into veterinary medicine, I probably would have chosen something like pharmacy as a career. It was a career pathway that I always found to be quite intriguing when I was a student doing my bachelor's degree. I've always been a bit of a science geek, and I think that's obviously quite a common thing among anybody who goes into pathology. I always enjoyed biochemistry, so it always kind of makes me laugh when I see those joking hate threads on, on Twitter about <laughs> the Krebs the Kreb cycle and stuff like that. But when I was doing my, my bachelor's degree, I, I think the whole idea of pharmacy in general just really appealed to me. I liked how it really linked science with toxicology and pharmacology and, and medicine. And it just really seemed like a great career option. And I, I often see that highlighted on Twitter, when I see all the great threads from the clinical pharmacists on there, I just find it to be quite a fascinating field. And I think that would have really appealed to me if I hadn't gone into vet med. So that's where I think I would have ended up. Yeah. And I think it's visual in kind of a, a different way. The biochemical structures that you look at, if you're thinking yeah. of the Krebs cycle visually illustrated, yeah. it's, it's a different kind of visual satisfaction and problem solving um, to the kind that we do, but still it's very, it's very visual spatial. So yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you do when, uh, when you're not practicing pathology, what are your interests and hobbies outside of medicine? Gosh, I think it's so weird right now because uh, COVID has stopped a lot of our external fun, hasn't it? Um, yeah, I'm sure from, it has. For many, different, for many different reasons. But I think some of my favorite things to do, I'm, I'm quite a winter person, so I love to get out and enjoy the snow when it's around. So I'm, I'm especially happy that I'm back in Massachusetts because yeah. we, get, we get great winters here, usually anyway, great snow. So I like getting out when it's snowy and, and just even just walking in the snow is great for me, but I enjoy stuff like snowshoeing, um, cross-country skiing and stuff like that. I also tried snowmobiling for the first time when I moved out to Indiana. Oh. And and that was a lot of fun. I've, n- I've never been on a snowmobile before. And, and that was, was great fun. So I'd love to do that again at some point. I, one of my friends out there has a few snowmobiles. So he used to often take me out, which was, which was fun. I also have a, a really kind of an oddball hobby that most folk don't expect to hear when they speak to me. I like target shooting. 
So I, I really enjoy going to the, the shooting range every now and then and, and doing some pistol shooting. It's, it, it's a strange hobby, I realize. But it's an unexpected hobby, I should say, but it's, it's an amazing way to focus. It, I, sure. It, it's kind of funny that I like it because I've never liked loud noises. The idea of going to loud bars or mm-hmm. places doesn't appeal to me anymore. So you'd think that being at a range would be really, really noisy when you, you know, you're doing target shots. But obviously you're wearing ear protection and stuff. But it's a great way to focus. It's a great way to kind of dust off the cobwebs. And I I find it really an amazing way to combine that kind of hand-eye coordination because you have to really focus. And it's a great way to get away from whatever is brewing in your head because you you, you have to focus on the safety side of things and also the hand-eye coordination for, for the targets. So yeah. I, I do. I love that. And it's good to practice your hand-eye coordination, right? It also combines the yeah. skills of visual spatial skills, hand-eye coordination. And I love that idea of being able to kind of put ear protection on and, yeah. and focus on something. Yeah. So cool. That's neat. Yeah. I'm looking forward to the winter because I'll, I'll be able to get outdoors at least with my snowshoes and things. So. Yeah. Yeah. Thank goodness we still have the ability to go outdoors, get some space and air. Yeah, it's been really a pleasure speaking to you, Dr. Perry. This has been really interesting. I've loved finding out about veterinary pathology and the similarities and differences to human pathology. So thank you so much for your time. Oh, and likewise, it's just been so great to be here. I'm I'm very grateful that you thought of me and, and let me join you. So thanks for your time too. Yeah, and we're really looking forward to, you know, continuing the conversation on Twitter. I'm always excited to learn new fun veterinary pathology facts. So thank you again to Dr. Perry for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And to hear more from Dr. Perry, again, you can follow her on Twitter at Tufts.Cat. And thank you all so much for listening. Support for the Free Path Pod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to Path Pod wherever you download your podcasts. Path Pod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.